Martin Luther, given to an occasional flourish and overstatement, Martin Luther said of the Gospel of John, he said, this is the unique, tender, genuine, chief gospel. Should a tyrant succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of the Epistle to the Romans and the Gospel of John were to survive, Christianity would be saved. And uh, one of the chief jewels in this chief treasure of a gospel is the opening, the prologue. The famous prologue of John's gospel, which consists of verses 1 through 18. We mentioned last week and we'll, we'll be looking at the prologue this morning, but we'll also finish the prologue this evening. So I encourage you to come back this evening if you can. Um, last week, we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, which also happens to be mentioned in this prologue. And we saw then how different, starkly different, the prologue of John's gospel is from the openings of all the other gospels. Right? There's no infancy narratives in John's gospel. There's no angels. There's no shepherds. There's no genealogies. For John, thinking about Jesus, grasping the mystery of the incarnation, for John, that starts, it has to start with the eternal being of God himself. That's where John starts his Christmas story. And so what John gives us is he gives us the theology of Christmas. Not simply the story of Christmas, but the theology of Christmas. And the benefit of this is that we see much more clearly the who of Christmas. The who. Not just the what. The who. And seeing the who, the person, then we can see just why the story Right, the what is so astonishing. That the higher and the more full and the more thick and the more majestic our vision of Christ is, the more clearly we see the staggering nature of what's on display in the incarnation. It is the theology of Christmas which gives the story its radiance. And so we'll look at this text under three headings. They're there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The Word and God, the Word and creation, and the Word's reception. So, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. John begins famously, In the beginning was the Word. You hear here clear echoes from Genesis 1, the very opening of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the beginning, in Genesis 1, marks a starting point. A temporal beginning, a beginning in time for all created things. But the beginning here is different. This beginning is more like a window that gets opened up. It's like a portal into the life of the eternal being of God himself. And you can see that in one tiny important word here. The word was. In the beginning, was. This is different than in the beginning God created stuff. In the beginning, something already was there and thus is without beginning. 
We mentioned last week Hilary of Portier, a 4th century church father, who said this of the gospel. He said, This fisherman of mine, speaking of John, unlettered and unread, is untrammeled by time. Undaunted by its immensity. He pierces beyond the beginning. For his was, in the beginning was the word, has no limit, no commencement. The uncreated word was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Another great 4th century church father, Eastern father, Alexandrian, named Athanasius, used to say, there was never a time, there was never a time when the word was not. The ancient Arians used to say that. And there are modern groups which say that. I think it was Matt Niffen who forwarded us a tweet to me this week. A tweet from Fred Sanders, a theologian out in Los Angeles. And the tweet was this. Mary had a little lamb, eternally begot. For contra Arius, there was no time when he was not. That's wonderful. That's the gospel in four lines. Mary had a little lamb, eternally begot. For contra Arius, there was no time when he was not. In the beginning was the word. And the Greek word for word here is logos. For the Greeks, logos was a kind of a a rational principle of order that sort of pervaded all things. It was impersonal. John is thinking primarily here of the Old Testament idea of the word of God. When John uses it, he's thinking of the word which said, let there be light. Of the word which is God himself in action, in his creative action. The word which accomplishes his purposes. The word that spoke through the prophets. The wisdom of God depicted in Proverbs as frolicking and playfully delighting in the creation and in all God's works. God's word is his speech. His speech. His language. His wisdom. And what's going on in this text here is momentous. Right? Here, God's word, God's speech, God's wisdom, God's language, after all these Old Testament anticipations, here it is given real personal existence. This is unfathomable to us. I mean, your word is not you. I mean, it expresses something of your mind and your heart, but then it vaporizes, right? My words are vaporizing. This word of God is God and remains. So these open, opening words then tell us something important about God. It is in God's very nature to speak. Our whole salvation depends on this. It is not only in God's very nature to speak, but it's in his nature to reveal himself, to communicate not stuff, but to communicate himself to us. And so God's being is eloquent being, word-laden being, linguistic being. In the beginning was the word. If you ever needed motivation 
to cultivate, say, the love of reading or a delight in words, you have it here. This is the deepest spring for why Christians print stuff and read stuff and write stuff and speak stuff. I had the, I had the privilege of being at the, uh, the, the, the speech and debate club, which many of the families or a handful of the families in the church are at. And I was invited to see all of these young people. It was a week ago Friday, I think, who had memorized huge portions of text. Come up and read it and perform it. It's an astonishing thing, humbling thing as well, I'll say. But um, it's rooted in this very idea in this text. That we live in a worded world, that we are worded creatures, that God is word, and thus we want to cultivate engagement with text and speech. There's something deeply Christian about books and texts and words and speech. In the beginning is not silence. In the beginning is the word. The language arts are the queen of the arts. And the word here makes the world into a story then, a narrative, a poem, a book. In the beginning was the word. That's what theology is. Theology just means theos, God, logos, reasoning or talking about God. That's what what we're doing here. That's what Christians do. That's what John's doing. He's theologosing. In the second phrase, we're told, and the word was with God. Notice the word is distinct from God. He has his own existence. And second, the word is with God, which means not simply side by side, but face to face. The idea is that the word was toward God. The word exists in the most intimate, personal fellowship with God. And the third phrase is, the word was God. I mean, if there's any doubt from the first two phrases, it's eliminated here. This is John's staggering claim in the first sentence of his gospel. What the Greeks call the logos, the rational principle in the universe, is the eternal word of God. The Logos is God, and the Logos is a person distinct from God. The Logos is a person in fellowship with God. Here we have the root. More than the root, really. We have almost the whole thing. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity. All of this from John, the theologian, the full-blooded, first-century Jewish monotheist. And this is an astonishing claim. And as astonishing as it is, It's also found in Paul. And Paul writes earlier than John. Paul's writings are earlier than the Gospel of John. It's also found throughout the early church. This idea that Jesus Christ is God incarnate is not, as the author of the Da Vinci Code would have it, something that the church decided to believe in the 4th century. It's present and it's pervasive from the beginning. From the eyewitness accounts. So this eternal word then. Is not a word about God. There are all sorts of religions that have words about alleged gods. Christianity is not a word about God. It's not even a word from God. It's the word who is God. 
And thus, in himself, in the person of Jesus, we have the, the full and the final and the definitive revelation of God. And the significance of this, for us, cannot be overstated. We can't gloss this. If you cut the nerve between God the Father and his word, you end up emptying the Christian gospel of all validity, all of its divine validity, all of its saving significance. Right? To put it rather bluntly, what would we care if Jesus of Nazareth announced the forgiveness of your sins if he is not this person? You might remember, I think it was 15 years ago or so, it was in the summer, there was this blackout which cascaded all up and down the East Coast and took a big part of the country out. Some of you, I'm sure, remember that, right? And the power was down for a long time. It turned out, I believe, afterwards when they did the sort of post-mortem analysis on it, that it was some component which failed somewhere in Ohio. So now, now the, power, the power grid is pretty fault tolerant. Like you can have a lot of failures and they remain local. They don't take the whole eastern seaboard down. But apparently if you get the right failure in the right place, you can cause everything to go black. Your faith is a lot like that. Right? You, you can, and we all do, get a lot of stuff wrong. Right? Everybody's walking around with a bunch of half-baked ideas in our heads. That's what we do. We're human beings, right? And it turns out the car still starts. You know, you can get dressed. You get along in life pretty well. But if you sever the link between Jesus and God, everything else goes black. The church cannot afford to get this wrong. Luther, in that same context, said this. He said, everything depends on the doctrine, the teaching in this text. This text, he says, serves to maintain and support all other doctrines of the Christian faith. If Christ, Luther says, is not true and natural God, born of the Father in eternity, we are doomed. Right? We just have another itinerant rabbi walking around saying stuff. Right? And that's, what, and that's often what people do, right? They shrink Jesus down. He's a moral teacher. He's an inspiring example. Of course, he doesn't claim any of these things for himself. He claims to be the incarnate God. But if you do that, what you cannot have is God himself coming into your plight to save you, to rescue you from sin and death. You can't have Christmas. You'd have just another birth, maybe a charming birth. Eventually, you just end up with donuts and social action committees. That's what happens if you cut the nerve here. So either John is right, and Jesus is God, or John and his whole gospel are blasphemous. Those are the choices here. But if you believe John 1.1, you're a Christian. If you don't, you're not. So the second point is the word and creation. This personal word, this word which is with God and is God, springs into action. It's a dynamic word like all speech is. Verse 3 says, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made. Right? From, from galaxies to subatomic particles. 
the Father creates all things through this word. Right? Things visible, things invisible. So in Genesis 1, when God says he speaks and he creates the world, he's creating through this eternal personal word. Without him, nothing was made, the text says. Not only was there never a time when he was not, there was never a thing that was made without him. And this, of course, means the word cannot be a creature. He's the maker, the fashioner, the artificer of all creatures. And so if you ever needed motivation to cultivate, say, the love of science, or the study and the delight in the created order, the works of God, you have it right here. It's the creation through this word, which in addition to making the world a story and a poem, gives the universe its glory, its unity, its coherence, its rationality, its deep order. Gives the world the character by which the world points beyond itself to its origin and its destiny. And the reason that any science or any human endeavor can even make progress in this, in this world, this word-oriented world, is seen in verses 4 and 5. In him was life. Right? The father has life in himself, and John will later tell us the son himself also has life in himself. This is the eternally alive, ever-living God. And in him was life, and that life was the light, notice that, of mankind. He, who is the eternal glory and the radiance and the speech of the Father, is the one who will later in this gospel call himself the light of the world. He illuminates or he radiates all creatures. That's John's claim here. This eternal word, who's the creator of all things, who is divine, who is God, lights everything up. So what he means here is this, all human light, meaning all human moral sensibility, all human use of reason, all human rationality, all functioning of conscience for all human beings springs from the light giving life of the word of God. It's an astonishing claim. In him was life and that life was the illumination the light, the reason, the rationality of all men. The second century church father, Justin Martyr, said that when Socrates and the others, the Stoics, were using reason, he said, when they reasoned, and and the word for reason there is logos, same word as the word for word in our text. When they logosed, he said, when they did this rightly, they were being directed by the word, by the pre-existent Christ. You know where this word is present? It's present anywhere anybody counts. In addition to speak, of course, but anywhere they, anytime they count, anytime they plant, anytime they build, anytime they think, anytime they speak, anytime any cognitive light of any human being is exercised, the logos is, is acting in power and in splendor and in glory. In all of those situations, in every action of human speech and rationality, Jesus Christ, the Logos of God, is shining forth. 
It is this eternal word who in the words of the Nicene Creed is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Notice how the creed goes here. It asserts that the word is God. That's the first point of our sermon, you might notice. And then it says, he is God through whom all things were made. That's the second point. And the third point is, he comes down for us men and for our salvation. And so we want to look then at this idea of the word's reception. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John is moving now from the eternal word and light that is the second person of the Trinity into space and time. Now that, now that word, now that light is coming into the world. And John calls Jesus the true light. This is a characteristic of John's gospel. He will later call Jesus the true vine, the true bread. True here means not only real or genuine, it means ultimate, the final light. In the beginning, God spoke his word, let there be light, and there was light. Here, that same word comes into the world and floods the world with light. The appearance of Jesus lights up the world. And that light confronts human beings with a decision. We're all confronted with this decision now that God has appeared in the flesh. There's a necessity of responding to this light. And we see in verse 10, and this is shocking, the initial response to the light is rejection. It's really rather... um, Surprising as you read through the prologue carefully. And John gives you this exalted vision of the Word. And then the Word appears. He was in the world, verse 10 says. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. We're so used to this that I think we forget how strange it is. The one through whom all things were made, the one who is the light of mankind, is unrecognized. Not only unrecognized, but rejected. Finally crucified by his creatures. John calls the good creation here the world. He was in the world. This is almost always a negative term for John, the world. He means the created order, human beings, but inasmuch as we are bent against God. God loves the world. He sent his son to save the world, but the world lies in darkness. And so the true light comes into the world, and the world doesn't recognize him. And verse 11, it deepens the wound. It deepens this mystery of rejection. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. Even his own nation, his own household in Israel rejects him. And in the gospel here, Israel stands in in a certain way. They represent the the world in its rebellion. So John is cutting deep into our hearts here. He starts up here, but he comes down. There's a kind of cutting indictment of human hardness of heart here. I mean, there there has to be, does there not, something deeply sinister and twisted and broken about the human condition that's being revealed by this rebellion. Face to face with the light, men choose and they still choose Darkness. In John 3, 
John will tell us men love darkness rather than the light because light exposes us. We love our darkness. Here's a Christmas message. I don't recommend you put this on your cards, but deep down, we all hate Christmas. People forget this. Deep down, we all hate Christmas. It's an encroachment on our freedom and on our autonomy. It's a light that shines into the dark crevices of our twisted humanity. In fact, we seek to kill the light. That's what we seek to do. Anytime you're tempted to think of human beings as basically good, you should remember the body of the creator word. God's very humanity. God's flesh, broken, lacerated, and nailed at the hands of his own creatures. And then recalibrate your estimation of humanity's wonderfulness accordingly. Yet, 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 the rejection was not total. The light is not extinguished or overpowered because it's rejected. Verse 12, yet... To all those who did receive him, Jesus did, and he still does, call out a band of followers. To all who receive him, to all who believe on his name. That's what it means to receive Jesus. It means to believe on his name. His name is his identity. His self-revelation. So here, this is important. In this context, believing on his name means believing that Jesus is God in the flesh. Right? This is what the Christian faith has always said. He and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. He is the great I am who met Moses at the burning bush. To believe in that name, to receive him, is to trust him, to acknowledge him, to confess him, and to give one's full allegiance to Jesus. And to those who do that, he says, to those who do that, he confers the authority on you, the privilege that you would be a son or a child or a daughter of God. Notice what's going on here. The eternal son, the son, it is his prerogative to grant to those who believe in him to become sons and daughters by grace, by adoption. Right? What Jesus is by nature, you are to become by grace. A child of God. And when this happens, the text says, this is not by any natural process or blood or ethnicity. They're born from above of God. It's a supernatural birth. Right? This has to be this way because our nature is to hate the light and to kill the light and reject the light. So we have to be raised out of death to life. From rejection then to reception. The world rejected, but to those who receive. Let me conclude now. I don't often do this, but I think this text requires it. Christmas, um, because it confronts us with this light, this light coming into the world, it's a time for decision. It's very important to, to understand this. It would be a tragedy for Christmas to go by and for anyone not to recognize or to believe on and to receive this one and become yourself a child of God. 
Right? Because the one who's in view here is God himself. So let me urge you, you do not have an infinite number of Christmases. And God himself addresses you in this text. Right? If you've been undecided, if you've not received Jesus Christ, not surrendered everything to follow him, I urge you to do that now. If you don't know how to do that, you can see an elder or you can see myself. Because in doing so, you receive the rights and the joys and the privileges of the children of God. Here's the Christmas gospel. Light and life to all he brings. But that requires moving from rejection to reception. I urge you to do that, that we might rejoice together as those who've received him. That we might say, see how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Amen.